Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mesnag and Isquayak. My name is Kayla, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Book Women podcast. And today I am here with only one of the book women. Sheila has, well, she is not able to make it for this episode, and we missed her very much so already. So that means that I am here with... Tanya. And, and we also... Go ahead. Yes, we have a special oh. guest. <laughs> oh, I totally cut you off. Oh my God, we're doing the Metis woman thing. Yes, we have a special guest today. We have another Maychef person. All the Maychef homies here today. So yes, introduce yourself. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. It's okay. It's your guys' show, so you know I want to go with what your 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 guys' flow. We don't know what the flow is. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, and we clearly practiced the flow, and it just didn't work out. So we'll. We're flowless right now. <laughs> Sheila not being here is throwing us off. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, Tanche Kiwao, Josh Morn, Nishin Kashun, Mr. Hai Sagan, Pei Manitou Sagan, Dus Chin, Mimi Chif Mia, and Mi Pishkwan, Pichi Li Dang and Mikchif. So, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joshua Morin. Um, my family comes from the historic communities of uh, St. Albert and Black St. Anne. And I use their traditional names, which uh, are Mr. High Sagan for St. Albert, meaning Big Lake, and uh, Manitou Sagan for uh, Black St. Anne, which means Spirit Lake. And um, I did also say that I am Metis, uh, and I also speak a little bit of uh, the language that we call Michif in that sense. And, uh, no, I just want to thank, you know, Kayla, uh, Tanya, and of course, uh, Sheila, you know, I know she's not here, but, uh, you know, she's very much part of this in one way or another. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I just want to thank you all for this opportunity for allowing me to be on your guys's uh, podcast show. This is really cool. And I've never been part of a podcast, you know, in that sense. So this is my first time doing something like that. So I think this is really cool. So thank you. Thank you. Marcy. Yeah, no problem. When we were planning season two, it was kind of just like, we're like, you know who we have to have? We have to have Josh. Yes. And yeah. I'm just so happy to hear that we're stealing your podcasting virginity. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's we're the best way to put it. Exactly. We're... We're pretty chill on this podcast. We're not super formal or anything like that. It's kind of just like a Métis podcasting party, kind of like a kitchen party where we just chat and talk about stuff. But yeah, I think you were kind of just somebody that came to mind. We've known each other for a few years now. So it was just one of those things where like, well, we have to have Josh on because when it comes to storytelling, we know you can tell stories. So yes. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. So I guess we can just kick it off with a few questions. I know, like Kayla mentioned, Josh, we have known each other for a couple of years. Do you want to t talk a little bit about how we met? Do you remember how we met? I do, yes, actually. <laughs> it was, yeah. Was it you and Kayla both doing that Making Meaning Symposium? You both were part of that? Yeah, um, Sheila too. Sheila yeah. too, yeah. Yeah, Sheila so, was, yeah, absolutely. It was more Sheila and Tanya um, that were doing it because I was still a student when that was happening and Sheila and Tanya were both working for the U of A and they were kind of already in like professional positions. And then I was just kind of there as the tag along that helped with the catering. 
So that's where I came She was an integral piece to that conference. Without her, we would have no gluten-free treats. That's true. (laughs) Nobody thought about the G-free people except for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I was just going to say, you know what? Yeah, you know, like back at that symposium, you know, it was really cool. And that was kind of like the beginning when I was kind of, you know, you know, like I was still heavy into the community work that I'm doing, but I was uh, still kind of a bit new to it on my side, you know, like I was branching out of uh, not working at, you know, retail kind of jobs and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, and I was starting to really reconnect to uh, my culture and um, way of life. And, you know, at that point I was, you know, probably a good year or so, or a good even couple years in on, on my path on, on doing that. And, for many of the the listeners who aren't aware, you know, I, I have been raised in um, what might some people might consider, you know, traditional Métis family style where, you know, always uh, knowing who, who our culture was and who our people were, you know, always uh, knowing that, uh, you know, proud to be Métis um, and that, you know, uh, we have our own language, Michif, we have our own music style, the fiddle. We have our own dances, the, the, the Métis jigging. And I did Métis jig too when I was, uh, you know, a bit younger, when I was in junior high around that time. Um, so, and I was always involved too with Métis events um, and meeting community members, uh, Métis politicians, <clears throat> some that, uh, you know, are uh, not with us today, um, Métis leaders, um, same thing, you know, some that have been really influential, but, you know, they're, they're not with us today. But of course, they're, they're all with us in spirit in that sense, you know, every step that we take as Métis people. Um, so it was really, really cool going to this event, the Métis Medium Symposium, because, you know, I, I got to meet a lot of, uh, and listen to, especially, that was the thing, you know, listening to a lot of really cool Indigenous people from across Canada. Um, I believe, you know, that's where uh, they had, uh, I can't remember the name, but, you know, you had a, a good uh, variety of people across Turtle Island. You know, I met a tall tan lady and she told me a really, interesting story about uh, the Taltan people and she was very interested actually into uh, my family last name um, the Vilnove side because she says there is Vilnovs in her community in that regard and I just was very uh, fascinated by that because I did have one ancestor one of my great-great-grandfathers Severe Vilnov that uh, ended up going to the Yukon area actually so that it was kind of a common route for them to travel through that northern BC area and up into the Yukon during the gold rush time. So it was uh, just really cool to connect with people. And then that's where, of course, I got to meet Tanya. I got to meet Kayla. And then I got to meet Sheila, you know, and uh, it was just really cool to once again, you know, not just meet you guys, but uh, listen to just what you three were doing already at that point. You know, I was really inspired me being a me to youth and uh, you know, Indigenous youth, of course, it's always been an interesting journey for me because a lot of times, you know, and I do, you know, I have a very supportive family and, you know, what we have accomplished has been very, very good. And, you know, we, we are really good role models, but a lot of times when it comes to, you know, like Indigenous empowerment and finding who I am and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of times I, it was really uh, me doing my own initiatives and trying to empower myself and, that kind of stuff. So it was really cool to see that, you know, there were others, you know, especially, you know, you guys being really influential uh, women in, in the community. And, you know, I was always been raised to 
you know, very much honor what the women have done and women's work and, you know, back in the traditional days and, you know, that kind of stuff. We were always, I was always taught that, you know, they, it was always equal in society. You know, the, the women were the, the decision makers just as much as the men. And in some cases, um, they were much more the decision makers where the men would have to go talk to the women about what things were happening. And then they would come to the conclusion of what to do in that case. So just kind of going back to that, you know, it was really cool to see what you guys were doing in, in your communities, you know, the, the U of A community, but also just the Métis community as a whole and the indigenous community as a whole. And, you know, the, the education community as a whole and the library community and um, really listening to all of that, you know, I just kind of knew I had to uh, connect with, with you three in some kind of way, just because, you know, uh, the work that we were doing in St. Albert, you know, it, I felt like could very, very much complement each other because you're all very much uh, community connected in, in that case, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, you know, Kayla's all the way in uh, BC now, you know, <laughs> in the, the unceded land. It's really cool to see that we're still keeping those connections going and those relations going. And, uh, you know, you're like, I imagine Kayla over there, you're, you're going to be building that connection with the indigenous community over there and uh, ensuring that uh, that relationship is uh, nurtured in that case. And so I felt, you know, it was really good for us to connect just because that, you know, we were very much complement with what, what we're doing. You know, you guys are very much educating uh, students over there, uh, future librarians, future educators. The way I always look at it is you guys are educating uh, future community members in that regard, because that's what uh, everyone in, in my belief in society becomes. They end up becoming uh, a part of the community in one way or another. So I really felt that we could, uh, help each other out and, you know, us providing, you know, uh, a lot of the, you know, local Métis history and culture and uh, how Métis people live and bringing them to our uh, McShift Cultural Center, which is uh, located in St. Albert. And it's uh, in a, located in an over 100-year-old house called Juno House. And uh, just showing them that, you know, we're, we're such a community people and community-oriented and uh yeah you know just that was really kind of like a lot of the thoughts that were kind of going through my head you know i just found you know like it would really help me on my path uh connecting with with you guys um and then i just felt you know i could also uh, uh help what you guys were doing in that sense because i see i could see it was really uh passionate what you were doing and that symposium i felt was really cool you know i really liked what that symposium uh, just the conversations that were being had, you know, um, I, the one big thing I remember about it was decolonizing labels, which I think can speak for a lot, a lot of things, you know, it's not just in libraries. I think that decolonizing labels could really speak all across the board. So I felt that was really, uh, one thing that I found was really cool from it. So yeah, that was kind of a bit of what, what I remember anyway from it. <laughs> yeah. And for all of our listeners that are joining with us, Today, uh, the Making Meaning Symposium was a kind of conference symposium that brought together uh, information professionals, librarians, museum workers, indigenous people. And it the purpose of the symposium was to talk about metadata standards and the way that indigenous communities and peoples 
are classified in such things as Library of Congress or Dewey Decimal System and how we can kind of think differently about the way that we categorize or classify Indigenous people when it comes to knowledge institutions. So they've had a few different um, making meeting symposiums. So they've had one in Alberta and then they've had it at a few other universities as well because this is still an ongoing issue in libraries, archives, museums is how do we actually classify Indigenous communities, Indigenous knowledges, and how do we change those metadata standards. So um, for example, the big one that everyone always talks about is uh, Library of Congress classification system and E99 and E98 are Indians of North America. So how do we change that to be reflective of communities and communities wishes on how they want to be called or classified. So this was kind of what the symposium was about. And that's how we met Josh as one of like the community members that came uh, to talk about, you know, how native communities want to be classified or categorized and the naming and the language that we use and how in some cases, like the term half breed is still used, especially within like a legal context it's still used, but it's not a term that we use to this day. So what is more of an appropriate term to use when it comes to talking about Métis, Métis communities? So that's kind of like how we all got to know each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's actually um, a really big part on how Sheila and I became really close. So I was helping her with a lot of the logistical things. So the conference was planned for a very small team of people. <laughs> I think it was about five people all together, something goofy like that. But um, I remember you emailing me, Josh, actually, and there was a wait list of people trying to get into the conference. And you're like, hey, I'm Josh from Mitchell Cultural Connections. Can I, I know it's full. Do you think I can come in? And I was just looking at the email and I was looking at my wait list. And I shouldn't say this because it was totally unethical. I'm like, you need to come here. You're, you're probably like, you know, you're weighted more important, obviously, than Joe Schmo in some other place, right? You know, so... Um, yeah, and I remember us meeting in a talking circle, actually. I think we were sitting next to each other or something like that. And after the mm -hmm. symposium, you messaged me and um, talking more a little bit about Mitchiff cultural connections, you invited me to a beading circle. They, you, go, you were doing beading. Mm -hmm. Crystal Letty came in doing, uh, what is this? I can't remember the name of the stitch call, but it was um, Made Might have flowers. been, yeah. Okay, the, yeah. The 3D, yeah, the 3D kind of looking one. Cab like yeah. Cabochon, possibly, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Uh, I remember me and my mom yeah. just going over there and hanging out. We're like, we're home. This is it. So, yeah, and that's where I met your your mom too. And both of you were like, hey, we need somebody to do this, 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 and this. Just like, oh god, <laughs> let's see if we can make it work. So I hope. I don't know. I'm hoping that the the U of A still have that going on, but I guess yeah. I don't really know too much about it anymore. Yeah, and I think like I don't know. Uh, now that I'm out in Vancouver, like I definitely miss like the Prairie Maychiff community. Like Métis culture is not very strong out here. And I know Tanya, you lived in Abbotsford for a while. So you totally know the exact same thing. And like, I think that's why I'm so happy to do things like this. We're talking to like you and other community members. Like it just kind of reminds me of home because I grew up in Alberta for like well into my 30s so at least 30 years so <laughs> and being away from there it's just like reminding me about like the things that you don't have in the sense of community out like with the prairie metis communities that are not so strong here and even the way that like 
even the way Métis people are talked about on the coast is very differently. So, yeah, I wonder, Josh, if you could talk a little bit more about the cultural stuff that you do at Michif. Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of back to my, my introduction, you know, a bit about myself. Um, so for many of the listeners who, uh, you know, once again, you know, first time, you know, hearing about me and that kind of stuff, um, uh, my grandma, she was the, the first Indigenous woman appointed to the Canadian Senate. Um, and her name was uh, Thelma Shalafu. Um, and she was, uh, you know, as everyone says, you know, your, your grandma is the strongest Métis woman you probably knew, or your mother is the strongest Métis woman you, you probably knew in that case, you know. Um, and that's definitely what my grandma embodied. And, uh, you know, she was very fierce. Um, you know, she was, it's funny listening to her stories, uh, you know, especially when she was in politics, because people, you know, they would say, well, here comes Thelma and her woman's lip, you know, and she'd be like, yeah, and you better listen, you know, right? So you could tell, you know, how she was, but, you know, she really said, you know, um, you had to be like that, you know, especially, you know, stick it to your guns, especially in her time being in politics, being uh, Indigenous, but of course, an Indigenous woman, you know, lots of stigmas were faced misogyny was just you know still is in this day and age you know over over the rails um because she was indigenous you know they would always uh not necessarily think they had to listen to her in that case you know which was something she always kind of laughed at because uh she had a very strong voice in that sense you know once she started talking you know everyone started listening it doesn't didn't matter uh, who they were or where they came from um and she was always very uh community oriented she always stayed connected to her community even when uh, you know John Cretchen called her and said you know will you come to Ottawa and funny enough when John Cretchen did call her and spoke to her in French she replied to him in Cree so it's pretty cool to hear you know that you know back in her time you know she was speaking you know all the way up to the highest level of the prime minister she was speaking indigenous languages to him in, in that regard. And it was the, the Cree language, which I find really, really awesome just because of the long history with that on the prairies here with that language and the people. Um, so yeah, you know, all of that, you know, she really started a, a constituency office in St. Albert when she uh, was appointed to the, to the Canadian Senate. Um, and that started at Riel Business Park uh, in St. Albert. And that was around 1997. And really what she wanted to do was one, you know, be able to connect with her community when she was going to Ottawa. This was a way that she could, you know, schedule meetings, have people come and physically see her, talk to her, you know, say, you know, this is happening in my community. Is there any way you can, you know, go to the, go to the Senate and tell them, you know, what the heck are you guys doing? You know, you better Spartan up or, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know? And uh, one thing I remember what was she was fighting for was uh, getting people popular or proper, um, telecommunications up in the northern Alberta areas in the early uh, 2000s because there was uh, big issues with that and uh, from what I hear some of the conservatives at the time they weren't they weren't trying to give people the proper communications up north and she was just saying you know well you know have you ever had to deal with that kind of thing you know how, how would you feel if you're in the middle of the woods and you couldn't you know communicate with anyone you know that kind of stuff so she was really cool and she would always bring community members you know, if you had a, an issue that she felt that, you know, that needs to be heard in that case, you know, she would bring them to Ottawa, you know, and she would house these people, you know, give them, you know, feed them, uh, ensure their stay was, you know, really good and, you know, let them tell their story. 
in, in that case, you know, so she was really cool uh, to hear about that. So having that constituency office, you know, in St. Albert and she was totally paying that too out of uh, her own pocket um, because members of parliament, uh, they get it paid for them, for them to have an office. But if you're a senator, um, you don't have an office uh, paid for you like that. So you have to go and pay for it out of your own pocket. So she totally did it. You know, she totally paid out of her own pocket and, you know, she wanted to ensure she was connected to her community and every single time she she was able to go home back from Ottawa, she was back home in, you know, here in St. Albert in that case, you know. Um, so she really wanted to establish that place, you know, one as that constituency office, as I, you know, mentioned, you know, she could say connected to her community. But one thing she really saw um, was lacking here in Alberta was a cultural center that was dedicated to the Métis people. And in her case, um, she was really passionate about the Alberta Métis that, that live here um, and have lived here even before um, this province, you know, uh, got, got the name that it is today. You know what I mean? The, the, we have been here uh, early, long, long time as Métis people, you know, 200, 300 almost years in that case. Um, but uh, she really wanted to share the Alberta story. Um, you know, it's not necessarily shared a lot when you talk about Métis history. She was kind of finding, you know, you hear lots about, um, you know, Red River, of course, and uh, the Battle of Batoche. Um, and, you know, mostly those two are kind of uh, heavily focused on. And then, of course, our uh, role in the fur trade is, you know, sometimes uh, talked about too. Um, but she noticed it wasn't really a, a dedicated place to talk about what was happening here in Alberta. And there was a lot of things happening here in Alberta, even, uh, you know, during the uh, 1885 resistance, um, St. Albert had its own uh, Métis militia that formed called the St. Albert Mounted Rifles. Um, and one of the men that led that one was, his name was Sam Cunningham. And, uh, you know, his descendants are still here with us today, you know, and they're very much uh, letting people know that, you know, that they are Métis and they have kept that Métis heritage within their family. Um, and he did lots. I mean, you know, he uh, opened the St. Albert Trail. Um, he was the first mayor of Gruard. Very political in the St. Albert scene. He was often looked at as the leader at that time of the community in that case, you know. Just stories like that, you know, we really wanted to share. And, you know, he even had ladies like... Uh, Rosalie LaRondale and that kind of goes back to what I was saying you know when the, the men would have to talk to the women sometimes about decision making because she was sometimes always kind of called you know the the vice president of the Métis Association during like the early like or not early uh, late 1800s early 1900s because the, the her husband would have to go and talk to her about decisions that were happening and she would, he would have to see what she would, she would say in that sense, you know, um, and just letting people know that, you know, uh, like Métis people, they, like once again, Abraham Salaw, right. We'll bring up him and he's, he's quite well known though. He's uh, very much noted at tail Creek and, you know, other communities across Alberta. Uh, but he wrote the, the St. Albert bylaws back in eight, like in the 1870s. And, you know, they have laws like, you know, all, all tuppies, which are uh, uh, Métis dog blankets, you know, beaded and embroidered, and they put them on their dogs and have bells on it, um, but that they all have to have working bells on those tuppies 
um, because they have to know if someone's coming, uh, you know, down a trail. Um, and you know what the, the easiest way to compare that today is like the, the bike, the bike bell bylaws that you sometimes see because then you know, someone's coming in, in that case. Right. So it's very similar in, in that regard, but just showing, you know, that, uh, that's, a, that's an example of, you know, having traffic laws almost in like 1870 in that regard, because they're telling people how their vehicles have to operate, uh, letting people know about those stories. That's what she really wanted to do at the Michif Cultural Center um, as well as give them, uh, you know, opportunity to have access to um, indigenous led workshops, you know, story times with elders, um, being able to console with elders, uh, being able to learn, you know, uh, like moccasin making and finger weaving and uh, drum making. Um, and, uh, you know, we're doing McChip language now, of course. Um, she wanted to do all of these things and give people access to it because so much of our people um, have been disconnected, you know, Métis, First Nations, Inuit, and, you know, it's really cool that she always wanted that center to be open to anyone in that regard. So anyone can come into our center and you know, take a moccasin making class, take a beading class, take a finger weaving course, learn about the language Michif. And, you know, you don't have to have um, a card from, for this place or this place to, to let you in. In that case, you know, once that open size says open, anyone can come in and take part of these workshops because um, she was always about that, you know, and traditionally uh, that's how we were as Métis people. You know, we were a community people, anyone coming in, we were very welcoming to them. You know, it's, it's uh, embodied in our uh, language, Michif, even, and, you know, lots of other indigenous languages. You, you just see that, that cute sense of community and relationship. It's uh, totally embodied there. So yeah, we just, you know, that's what we really wanted to do. And, you know, now in today's time, you know, and she opened that back in 19, you know, as I was saying, 1997. So she was down at Real Business Park. Then she moved to Juno House, which we're at today. That was around 2003. The city of St. Albert were uh, looking for people to occupy that, that facility that they have. And it's, uh, it's funny how they call it a facility because, you know, it's just an old, you know, it's an old house that's still on its original plot, you know. And, uh, you know, back is built probably in you know, 1888 or 1890 in that case. Um, but yeah, she moved into there. That's where she really kind of kicked it off as more of a Métis cultural center. Cause by that time she was retired, uh, from the Senate in that case, but she knew there was so much more work to do. You know, she knew there was so much more work to do. She's always said, you know, if you're retired, you've been dead for a long time in that case. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of people, you know, I grew up with, you know, very hardworking, very passionate, you know, always ensuring, you know, checking in with your community, wanting to see you, do your community need anything? And what she saw was that the, the community as a whole, you know, all across Alberta and even all across the, what we will call the, uh, the Métis homeland and across even Canada and beyond that, because nowadays Métis people, you know, I could live here, but who knows in 10 years, I could live in another country in that sense. But of course I would still be Métis, right? But um, she wanted to uh, give all of those people a chance to learn about who they are, or a chance to reconnect uh, to who they are. Um, you know, another quick aspect too would be that, you know, because we were raised, you know, knowing who we are as Métis people, 
um, we, we realized, you know, not everyone had that chance growing up, you know, history of colonialism, presidential schools, 60 scoop, um, the road allowance story, you know, like all of those things, you know, you could see why families just, you know, did not want to identify anymore. But, um, the way we always were raised was we kind of viewed it as it was the one thing we had left as Métis people was who we were, our culture, our way of life. And that was really what was keeping us going through those dark times. And you know what, there was a lot of families, even if they were not identifying, in many cases, they were unknowingly doing traditional things like, oh, you know, uh, we would still go out and hunt. Um, Grandma still makes moccasins, you know, and, uh, you know, we still make bannock, you know, and uh, a lot of those little things that they still do. Um, but it's just, you know, with the, the whole history of it, of course, they just feel very disconnected. So we wanted to give them that, you know, we want them to reconnect, show them there is a community. There are people here that still identify as Métis. We're proud to be Métis. Um, you absolutely can also be proud to be Métis in that sense too. You know, it's totally okay. Um, but we totally understand though also um, the journey that you're on in that case. And we want to really help you on that journey. One of the best comments I ever heard just from uh, one lady we had take one of our makeshift classes was that she was like, wow, you know, this is what I've been looking for all my life in that case. And she was, you know, probably, you know, uh, middle-aged in that, in that sense. So I could see, you know, it just really put me in perspective how long then, you know, she must've been waiting to just feel like she fit in uh, sense of community, uh, you know, a place that's just, uh, she can be herself in that case, you know, it's just very interesting how uh, the things that I hear and uh, it just shows, it just brings value to what we do in that, in that sense. And it really uh, makes me proud of the work that we do. And um, my grandma, she, she is now, she is now past, um, but I think she would be really proud in the uh, what we're still doing in that sense, because that's very much how she ran the center. You know, anytime I'd go there, it was always building connections, you know, people being like, you know, like, wow, you know, like you, you've done so much for me, you know, in that case. And, you know, really, it's just, you know, it's it's just our duty almost in that sense. You know, as my grandma always says, it's our job that we've been put on this earth to do. And, you know, you're you're only as strong as uh, the weakest link in your community you know, that's how we as Indigenous people always kind of view it. You know, the, we have to bring up that person who is struggling in our community so our community can be strong in, in that regard. So supporting those who are struggling in our community, um, that's always how we looked at it. You know, you have to support that person so your community is strong and your community is strong so that you can be strong. In that, in that case, they very much work together hand in hand. So... Yeah, you know, it, it's a really cool place. You know, we do have um, we do have a museum in there, a small museum. But, you know, we have my great-great-grandfather, Severe Villeneuve's Métis Sash, that's traditionally finger-woven. Um, we do have Métis Dog Blankets in there. We do have a old buffalo hunting rifle that's that's on the, uh, the bookshelves in there. Um, that's another thing, too. We do got lots of good resource books that are in that house, you know, lots that uh, aren't in print anymore really uh, cool ones because they're Métis focused, First Nation focused, um, Plains focused, you know, very much about the, the history of this area. And then of course, upstairs, we have a room that's dedicated to uh, Aboriginal veterans 
um, because my grandma was so connected to the uh, Aboriginal war veterans. And uh, there's even an Aboriginal uh, war veteran society, I believe, that she helped uh, start that up to in some form or way. Um, but she was always passionate on getting those stories shared too, was the, the veteran stories, because those stories weren't always shared too. And a lot of times, uh, you know, they were, they were left out when people were honoring, you know, the other, you know, uh, non-Indigenous soldiers in that case. And a lot of times our Indigenous soldiers were, were left out of uh, just being honored and compensation packages and uh, all of those things. So she really wanted to ensure those people, you know, uh, were once again, you know, uplifted and being supported by their community. So, yeah, you know, it's a really cool place. You know, I, I just love that aspect that it's uh, it's open to everyone. You know, anyone can come into that center and uh, learn about who the Métis people are in that in, in that case. One last thing, too, quickly, you know, before we move on to the next, if there is another, if there's more questions, too, you know, I know this part I kind of talked a lot in, in that sense, but, you know, <laughs> we, hear, good. we hear lots, you know, you apply for your Métis card, you get your Métis card. And then we hear lots from people, they're like, well, well, what's next now? In that case, you know, uh, where's, you know, where do I connect now to the community? And I find that's where we really do fit in, in the St. Albert community. Um, there is a St. Albert local, uh, Métis local that I am a, a member of. Um, they are starting to be active in that case, you know. Um, but, you know, really we have filled that, that gap of, empowering people so they can be proud to be Métis again and showing them the culture and the way of life that our people live. You know, that it's, uh, it's beautiful, it's inclusive, um, it's about empowering people. And yeah, you know, it, we find we really, uh, yeah, we kind of just feel that in that sense, which is really, it's kind of cool, you know, because we bring people to community. Well, and it just, it reminds me of, so they had the, for Orange Shirt Day, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation had like a two-part series about reconciliation. And part two of it did have, um, so they were very inclusive and they did talk about all experiences, which is not always something that you hear. So they did include like kind of a Métis perspective on residential schools and reconciliation as well. And I think the really interesting thing that they did, which actually like I totally had the awe moment and then like they got all the feels and then maybe my black heart cried a little bit over this, but they had this little girl and she was five years old. And I totally posted this on my Facebook because they had this little girl that was five years old named Rosie. And she was talking about from her experience, what it is to be Beatty. And so this little girl, and so she goes through and she explains like the different generations of Métis people that led up to her. And so she talks about the founders. So we get like Cuthbert Grant, Louis Riel, Gabrielle Dumont, like the founders of the Métis nation. And then she goes through and then she explains like the founders, the resistors, and then we get into like the lost generation. And then, so she calls her mom's generation which would be us as well, the found generation. So those who were once lost are now found and they're reconnecting to their identity and their heritage and they're like finding themselves. And I know like within my family, it was like my aunties, uncles, 
that kind of thing are still on that cusp of very much so being the lost generation that lost touch of who they were and what it meant to be Métis. But now with me and like my cousin and hopefully going forward with any like children that I might have one day are very much so in this like found generation. Like we know what it is to be Métis. We know what it is to have like a strong sense of community and identity. And I know like since I was a teenager, like I've very much so been connected with what it means to be like a Mechev person and like a Mechev Ukrainian person from central Alberta and how both of those identities very much are reflective of who I am and where I grew up and where I come from. And so like just that little like clip that they had though, just gave me all the feels like this little five-year-old just being like, and I'm part of the found generation. Thanks mom. It was like the cutest thing. I was like, this is the cutest thing in the world. Her explaining what it is to be a Métis was just like, I had all the feels that day. I want to watch it. It's die. on my Facebook. It's on my Facebook. Okay, so you can it. definitely find it. And like I was making Bannock, well, because like my brother-in-law is from Washington and he is, um, he's been up here since COVID. And so like I went over to my sister-in-law in his apartment on Orange Shirt Day and he didn't know what Orange Shirt Day was. And so I was trying to explain it to him. And then he didn't know what residential schools were because he's from the States. And I was like, well, y'all like kind of were the ones that started this shit in Pennsylvania. And he's like, oh, I kind of remember that. I'm like, yeah. So we talked about like what Orange Shirt Day is, what residential schools were, what day schools were, what the 60s scoop was, kind of like all that legacy and then also what it means for like intergenerational survivors and I made Bannock for everyone and he had never had Bannock and it was just like this really good opportunity for like teaching and talking and like talking about like being a survivor because my grandpa and my um, great grandma went to residential school uh, in Saskatchewan and here in Alberta so or in Alberta so it was kind of like one of those things to talk about like kind of what that legacy did to our family and then also what it did to like the way that we all identify in our family as well. So it was just like a really good moment of learning and telling stories and like talking about things as well, but also bringing in food because that always makes it easier. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think you're, I think you're right about this. I, most of the Métis folks that I listen to, of course, not all of them, but I've, I've talked to you about this is that, yeah, I would see myself as part of the, starting cusp of the found generation because there's so many things that I had experienced in my family life and I didn't even realize that it was Métis. Mm -hmm. For example, the, there's a card game called La, Bar La Barouge, I think it's called. Bar yeah, it's, it's a Métis card game, but it's, a, it's from, um, from my family back in Manitoba. But I remember even going on a website and seeing the card game and being like, what the... <laughs> what this is Métis but that's that's the thing too like it's 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 a big responsibility as well just to ensure that this culture gets passed on and I mean I'm starting to take on my part of it by learning how to make traditional foods this was the first time I made a fried bannock and Kayla is shaking her head at me because <laughs> <laughs> so this is what happened so I am, I'm dating somebody new and he was coming over for dinner and I was like, I'm going to make fried bannock because we were making, I think we, were, we made Métis stew or something like that. Yeah, you guys were and making stew because I we remember your stew, mom was there. <laughs> and oh my goodness. Yes. So Kayla's like, I'm going to teach you how to make it over Zoom. So it's like, perfect. This is the <laughs> best. 
because Josh knows I make it's, great bannock. It's so. supposed to be right out. It's supposed to be just like the commercials, you know. You just whip it up. And yeah. Josh knows oh I love making bannock, and I make great bannock. So she's a good bannock flapper. So I learned I from am. the best. But <laughs> I was in my kitchen trying to do this, and Kayla's talking to me on Zoom, and my mom is like talking to me in my other ear, and just like there's so much going on. So. And that's it. That was another lesson in it that I didn't treat making bannock as a ceremony and putting all of my attention onto it. So I was a little too frazzled. And Kayla's laughing because she just heard a, a scream for me. Ah! <laughs> I don't know if you can see this, but I have a giant scar on my hand. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it goes about this far. So I had to go to the hospital for, um, I think it was second degree burns, something like that. So this is this is the ancestors teaching me some. She like I don't know. Oh, if you like threw the bannock in the oil. Like I don't know what happened. Yeah, I think as I washed my hands and my hands were still wet, and probably one of the oh, rocks okay. went into the grease as I was laying it down. But I've seen that happen me. once or twice. Believe it or not, the the grease injuries. Yep. So I've experienced that firsthand. It, oh, it's it funny. Actually, <laughs> it makes me Thank laugh you. when you're like. You know, yeah, to treat it like ceremony. I'm like, I literally worked, talked on the phone and made Bannock the other day. I'm like, I do it, do it like memory now to the point where I don't have to pay attention to what I'm doing and I can do 500 things while also making it. So I'm, oh, I'm not, I'm not at that point yet. Well, I was going to say that um, <laughs> we, we're well, like in my family, we always call ourselves just Bannock snobs in that sense because whenever we go to places that serve bannock we're always like all right let's see how the bannock is you know we're like already ready to critic it pretty much is it good is it good you know <laughs> right and yeah no we're, we're pretty bad in that in that case but oh you know it's all it's all trying you know it's all trial and error you know and you'll eventually get it and you know i imagine if i tried bannock the first time it probably wouldn't be wouldn't be that good i've tried baked before but not yeah our family usually does baked like mm -hmm. if it fried like that we call them bangs yeah and that and that's mcchiff that'd be mcchiff in a sense the bang so. how is your but your mom josh makes good like fried bannock i've had hers yes. before and it's good she just needs yes. to teach you no absolutely you know what and honestly it's basically the same recipe that you use for uh baking in that sense you know you just yeah. don't um i think it's just you don't add there's something you don't add like the lard or something because you're already frying it yeah so for me it's just um flour salt a little bit of sugar and water i don't yeah. put anything else in it but i have heard of people putting like milk in theirs or like no. lard no. in theirs and i'm just they, like you can my put mom's lard. put buttermilk in there before oh really when we bake it, we will put lard in it because, uh, like, in the old days, they would use animal fat sometimes. Yeah. In that case, right? But, um, no, like, once once you start putting in milk and, you know, butter and that That's kind of not bannock anymore. Do you, think our, do you exactly. think our ancestors were out in the bush on the trap lines, like, milking oh, a cow? Oh, we got some butter. No, do you think I you're <laughs> milking a, like, moose out there? Yeah, like, that's not happening. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe they were. You never know. Draft onto the side of a buffalo. Uh, Man, exactly. Moose, moose would just drag him. You would drag him all the way, pretty much. But no, it's totally. Uh, I, I think that's really funny. You know, you guys bring that up because you know, like I was always, you know, raised. You know, like the baked bannock was the traditional bannock for. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'll just, you know, I can only speak for Métis people in that sense. You know, right? 
Um, and that was the best example you brought up, Kayla, was, you know, if you're in the middle of the woods, right, and, you know, you have your your mixture on you, you know, your Bannock mixture, you know, we'll just call it that, or, you, you know, I generally imagine that's what they would have it, you know, just all put into a mixture and then you carry it on your on your way to go. And then you're by the river, there's a river there, you know, and of course the nice part about those days is, you know, there, there wasn't polluted rivers or anything like that, you know, so you could actually just go to the river grab water out of it, boil it and, you know, use it in your, in your, uh, to make bannock. And then you wrap it around a stick and cook it. And that was one of the earliest ways of, uh, you know, baking, mm-hmm. baking bannock in that yeah. regard. Yeah. And the, it's not that I don't like baked bannock. It's just like, I think I've had too many experiences where people make baked bannock and they either like, it's like a hockey puck or, yeah it tastes too much like baking soda. I'm like, are you just like dumping yeah. the baking powder in Yeah, there? Like, that's what it is. It's, it does taste like true. that. It's got like a weird, like not a weird, but a stingy kind yeah. of. Yeah. So Do you I'm know just that fizzy like, taste in your <laughs> Yeah, I'm just totally like turned off of it. But also like, I think it's that like Orcadian Métis, like that Scottish Métis in me that's just like, so like a bannock snob you're right like a total bannock snob and there is bannock that i and i mean i try not to do it because it is totally rude but i have been that person that spit out bannock before <laughs> and like gagged and like i hope spit you spit it, it out. into a, into a oh, napkin or something yeah but or it's did just you like, just like spit it out at somebody's like, no <laughs> i, I spit it out into a napkin <laughs> but i've definitely been that person that's like taken a bite out of bannock and been like Ugh, and then like gagged it into a napkin <laughs> and then judged the person but it's also like and i mean because we're talking about bannock and like stories and ancestors i mean we can't let that like the museum of natural history or whatever the museum is in Ottawa and oh, their yeah. bannock fail. Like whose auntie taught you how to make bannock that way? That burnt hop hockey puck, like everybody. And like, they're like, Oh, it's our staff member and their family's tradition. Your family tradition is a, to burn the hell out of it. Like, yeah, I think they used to stock photo or something like that. I don't think that that was no, actually No, I, I think the person, no, it and is. And was baked I, bread or something. Was no, it, it was baked bannock. It was like, um, so, cast iron, like it, the way that you would make it on the fire. Just somebody really burnt it. And they yeah. use that photo. I wouldn't want it so was. <laughs> it is like cast iron bannock. So that's, it is bannock. It's just, they burnt the heck out of that bannock and then use that. And I'm sure this like, and I feel sorry for the person because I'm sure their family has their bannock tradition, whatever. But anybody's auntie that serves burnt ass bannock at anything, it's like, that's burnt. Like what I is think, this hockey uh, pack? <laughs> like, it, it's, it's, it's safe to say it's not, it's not the the bannock you see in the Métis homeland <laughs> in that no. case, you know, and no, absolutely. You know, when I saw that, you know, but the thing was though, this weren't they, they were pushing it though as indigenous or something like Métis or like the way they were pushing it was like, not um, like they weren't saying like, okay, this is Scottish bannock or this is a uh, Orkney yeah. bannock or uh, you know, and I, I did think, I think they did try changing the wording or something. No, I I remember this. And yeah, it was for like an indigenous thing. And they were talking about how it was. So after it came out as like, oh, this is indigenous Bannock tradition. And then like they talked about the history of Bannock and coming over from like, like Scottish um, fur traders who, you know, their wives and then that Scottish Métis like myself, how, you know, we love it. But so they tried to pose it as yes, like Métis indigenous Bannock. 
But then when all the indigenous people saw that photo of that burnt bannock and they were like, what are you doing? That's not bannock. And they were like, oh, well, our programmer who made it is bannock and that's their family's tradition. And we need to be respectful of that. And I'm like, your family, but in my mind, like in my like snotty little bannock snob (laughs) mind, I was like, so you're Ontario metis or whatever tradition is to just burn the hell out of your bannock like we're still judging like (laughs) I know even it was it became a joke the other day like I think you and um Paul Grow were talking and Paul was like oh Tim Hortons or McDonald's should have bannock and I was like no because then it'll be like the Museum of National History's burnt ass bannock like they're not going to get it right it's going to be like a scone and it's going to be burnt (laughs) Oh, it's funny. Well, you know, like even too, like, yeah, I remember he, Paul, he posted this picture of like this uh, food crate or whatever. And it looked like it was almost like kind of like one of those things that you take someone on a date with, you know, like one of those romantic kind of, you know, date kind of picnic things. Right. But then oh, I call, oh, I, yeah. Board. Yeah, yeah. And I commented, yeah. I was like, so do they put Bannock on that? Or, and then he was like, Oh, you know, maybe they have cheese whiz too, you know? Right. And I was just thinking like, man, we're totally ruining like this. Like what? <laughs> I never heard of the cheese whiz thing until last year. And I was like, wait, what cheese oh, yeah, whiz? Yeah. Until I met, oh. yeah, somebody that eats it with cheese whiz, and I was like, "That's a good idea." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty good. You oh. know, it's, it's it's funny because um, my mom actually she was talking about this pie. I think it was a year ago. It was either a year or two years ago, and she calls it flapper pie. Um, yeah, oh. you know exactly right. And she remembers growing up eating that pie. And you know, from what I hear, it. Definitely prairie Métis. And then also I do hear that um, some uh, French families or something did also make it or families that, you know, spoke spoke that language. But uh, from what I hear and what she grew up was that she knew it as a Métis kind of pie dish or that Métis or at least people living on the prairies were uh, making. Um, so she made it. She found a recipe online. She made it. And it's kind of like... Um, I don't know. The only way I could kind of explain it would be like if you wanted to make like a prairie meringue kind of style pie, almost sense with a crumble kind the of flatbread cake. Doesn't it have? Is that the one that has the cornstarch pudding center? Yes. Oh, exactly. so yeah. good. Is yeah, it like water I, pie where it's like cornstarch, water, and sugar, and that's it, and it makes like a pie filling. I think yeah, kind of along that lines. You know, if you ever had the what. Tanya said the cornstarch, uh, we like with cornstarch pudding almost in a sense is what I've heard some people call it too, but it's like a, yeah, cornstarch filling. And, um, I even remember kind of growing up and having it like that on cakes. Like I remember that on cakes, like a filling on the cakes. It was just kind of really cool. Cause it was just going through this journey of, uh, hearing her talk about, uh, the stories of hearing this pie and then she finally made it and then we got to try it. And we're like, wow, this is really good. You know, I could see why mm-hmm. this was a hit and, even the recipe that we searched it up on, they kind of called it like a long lost prairie dish kind of pie thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I've made water pie, pie before, but not flapper pie. I need to look this up and make it. Oh, uh, search pudding. You Send me the recipe. It's so good. Just throw a giant spoonful of jam on top of it, some cream. <laughs> you got yourself a dessert. That is a good dessert. Yes, please. <laughs> Anyways, I I'm looking at the time here, Josh, and it looks like we have time for about one last question. Uh, so it seems like the theme that we were talking about today is um, 
Michif Cultural Connections and these cultural workshops, they're basically, you're providing a space for people to reconnect with their, with their culture, right? Um, and it seems to me like a big piece of that is storytelling through visiting with each other. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about that further and how you, I guess, would encourage a somebody who, like you said, just got their Métis card and is looking to reconnect and find out their own family stories. How, what kind of advice would you give to them? Yeah, so I mean, uh, even just touching on sitting down and hearing stories and uh, you know, that aspect, you know, it, it's so casual. It's just, it's literally just like how we were just talking before so casually about, you know, eating food and bannock and, you know, this, you know, this traditional dish and making traditional foods, you know, it's, it's very uh, casual like that and just sharing jokes. And the really nice part is that when you take a, like a workshop, for example, you know, say a moxie making workshop or a drum making workshop or any of those you're having a person-to-person interaction um, with the elder that uh, we bring in or the knowledge keeper that we bring in for that workshop one elder that we uh, bring in quite frequently and she was a really good friend uh, of my grandma so we really like to upkeep that relationship with her and her family Um, but her name's elder Joyce Beaver from up in the Sandy Lake area and uh you know you just get to sit with her uh hear stories of how she still lives on her land she still has a wood burning stove um she's you know her last name is beaver and she has beavers on her property and she defends those beavers she lets them work and build their beaver dam and all that kind of stuff you know and she tells people you know don't don't mess with my beavers kind of thing you know um and you know she's this 70 plus year old elder who's you know still driving she uh you know plants her own garden she still hunts when she can um you know she she's on a walker but she's still so uh, mobile for her age you know you get to hear her stories and how uh how she grew up traditionally and you know you're also sitting surrounded by other other people that you're going to be hearing their stories so you know you might be sitting by uh you know another metis person or a first nations person or even you know we've had newcomers take courses um and you get to hear all of their stories and uh experiences and you know i think that's something that a lot of people always value when they take our workshops because you know like you could go in and okay here's step one stitch this here's step two do this here's step three you know it could be very kind of basic and at that level but really when you come to uh our space you know, you're not just going to learn those steps. You're going to learn, okay, well, here's why we do those steps almost in that sense. Okay. In the old days, this is what would happen, you know, okay. Um, they had to keep the sewing needles and make sure they didn't get bent and that kind of stuff during the winter time. Um, because it was harder to go to the general stores during that time to get more, uh, sewing needles in that case. So hearing, you know, just kind of old classic stories like that. Um, and, you know, of course, because, uh, you know, I'm always there during the workshop time, you know, I'm always open to talking to them about Métis history and uh, the culture and, uh, you know, stories of uh, St. Albert in that case. Um, so it's, uh, I think that was, uh, that's something that's really cool is that we, we always offer that, of that people being able to hear stories. And uh, I mean, it's literally, you know, people just have to walk in, walk into the door and say, you know, hello, um, could I get a, could I get a tour or, um, hello, I'm Métis. Here's my family history. Um, you know, and uh, just, you know, and I know that part can be tough for sure, you know, starting that conversation. 
mm-hmm. that sometimes can be the hardest part. Except, like I, I know that just from experience, just because you know, um, you know, I grew up with, uh, and I still do deal with it time to time. But you know, anxiety and you know, like not wanting to associate with people and you know that kind of stuff. So I understand, you know, starting the conversation can be really hard, but we always try very hard to ensure, you know, your experience is very, uh, you know, welcoming and you have a sense of community and uh, you're, you're always welcomed in our space. You know, you, your story's valued. It doesn't matter where you come from in your society. We will sit down and, and, and listen to what, what you have to say in that sense, you know, and, and we hope that uh, you're, you're wanting to learn about the Métis people in, in that kind of stuff, you know. Um, you know, a really cool thing is that, you know, we, you know, you don't even have to, like, even if you haven't gone to get a Métis card in that case, because I know that can be a big process of its own, you know, absolutely still come to our center in that case, because, you know, the way I always kind of looked at it is, you know, you're, you're born, you're born Métis, but you're never, you're not born with the card. In That's that true. Sense. You yeah. know, so the card it is important because it does prove, of course, citizenship and that we are a nation and that, you know, we're you know stronger together and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, but of course, you know, really as a Métis people, we're defined by our culture and our way of life and who we are. So I think, you know, giving people that, you know, that even motivates them sometimes. Okay. I'm going to go get my Métis card now because now I know who I am in that case. And I know what to do with that in that regard. So it always, it's cool how it kind of works hand in hand in that regard. And you know, another really cool thing too, is that even if you're not Métis in that case and say, if you're just, you know, uh, you're someone who's just, you're disconnected just from a community or, you know, you're, you're an indigenous person who uh, is just trying to find their way. Um, we've helped a lot of people in those situations too, because, you know, it just goes back to kind of our traditional ways of we were always open to everyone. We always had, you know, relations with the First Nations people. Um, we had relations definitely with newcomers that uh, were, were arriving, you know, very welcoming. We always help anyone that's just trying to find a place. And that's kind of, you know, always what my grandma was always a voice for, you know, um, a voice for anyone who needed a friend, people who were always pushed to the side. She was always there to push them back and be that strong voice for them people who are left out, people who are forgotten, which is, you know, something the Métis people have always been associated with, you know, the forgotten people pushed to the side, you know, no one wants to talk about Métis politics or rights or, you know, what are we going to do with the Métis people, right? Um, So it's even in our story as Métis people, right? So I think that's why we can offer, you know, uh, not just Métis people who are disconnected, but a lot of other people who are disconnected because they will find, um, either a comparison with our story, which is like, wow, you know, these are very resilient people and I've seen how they've overcome it and now it's inspired me to overcome it. Or they'll, they'll also look at it, you know, and uh, not just compare it, but, you know, they'll see uh, that we did overcome it in, in that sense that there is a way to be proud of uh, who you are, where you come from, your story, your, your culture, who you are, um, one cool thing was, you know, and we do lots of blanket exercises in the in the St. Albert area. We went to this one group that was dealing with a lot of newcomers. And there was one lady from uh, India that traveled over here. And I was talking about um, the McChiff language and, you know, 
it's a language that was, you know, uh, some people say it's, it was taken from us because of the residential schools. Uh, others will say it was lost. You know, it was a language that we just couldn't speak for, for a long time in, in that regard. And uh, the ones that did hold on to it and did speak it, you know, I very much respect and honor and uh, I'm very grateful uh, for those families that did that because the language um, is a 100% mere reflection on who we are as um, Métis people. But just talking about that in my journey of reconnecting with the words and, you know, this is the words my ancestors would say. So it's really cool how I'm actually um, saying the same words that my ancestors would say. Um, it was really interesting to hear her response because she was saying, you know, well, when I came to Canada, um, it was almost like I was influenced to not want to speak my language, not want to be part of my culture. You know, it was big focus on, you know, trying to get into that generic kind of uh, Canadian society. And, you know, in my eyes, it's like whatever, whatever that is, you know what I mean? Because I believe there's a lot of diversity here, but there definitely is that push though, much as how we face as Indigenous people to change who we are um, for whatever you know in our case it was a it was a colonial government that was wanting us to change who we are as Métis people but she was really inspired to just say you know screw that you know like screw trying to you know screw that you know screw the settler government almost in that sense that's the way I kind of viewed it when she was saying that you know like she was like you know this really inspires me to want to just still speak my language continue to speak my language continue to be proud of who I am and that's a really good example, I think, of, you know, uh, you know, we're not just serving the Indigenous community, but we're serving the entire community as a whole and uh, really trying to build bridges that um, have uh, been broken heavily from, uh, you know, 150 plus, you know, in some cases for some nations, you know, 500 plus years of just colonialism that they have had to deal with. And uh, now in, in this day and age, you know, we're, we're very much trying to um, reheal ourselves in, in that case. So it's, uh, I think that's kind of a really cool aspect of it and uh, what we offer. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh, for sharing your story, sharing the story of Mechef and for this like awesome conversation. I know I definitely miss being out in Alberta and coming and visiting you at Mechef as well as your mom and everybody else. So in our, on our website, I will post uh, the Mechef Cultural Connections website, as well as your contact information and your social medias for the site as well. And definitely for all of our listeners, if you get a chance, go visit Josh out at Juno House. It's absolutely amazing. I've spent some great like summer and winter times out there visiting in St. Albert. Plus, if you are a listener and you're Métis or you're Indigenous and you're looking for any sashes, flags, anything like that, they have a little gift shop there. So I know they're like my May, uh, Mechef is my number one connection for moccasins because they sell absolutely beautiful moccasins at the center as well. So definitely hit them up. I'm Kayla. We are the Book Women. Thank you so much, Josh, again. And we will see you all next time. Hi, hi. Marseille, Marseille.